Let's find in our Bibles Romans chapter 3 once again. If you remember, we are working our way through those first eight verses that most have agreed throughout church history are relatively challenging to interpret. And they're part of, it's important to keep in mind that they're part of a bigger unit of thought in this letter to the Roman church that began back in chapter 1 and verse 18 and runs all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. And that is Paul bringing the entire world, every human being, both Gentile and Jew, under The condemnation, the just, the righteous condemnation of God because of their sin against Him. That's really the point of it all. He is having to convince the world of its sinfulness and of the righteousness of God and their unrighteousness and at the, at the righteous judgment of God and the coming wrath of God. He's having to really convince them of this. He started in chapter 1, verse 18, and ran through chapter 1, verse 32, the rest of the chapter, in condemning the Gentiles or the nations, just humanity generally, from the fall till Paul's day and even till now, all are in the same problem. They are under the righteous wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, and especially beginning about verse 12, he's addressing the Jews who would have agreed with what he said in chapter 1 about the nations, but didn't see themselves rightly as sinners. That's what they struggled with. They would have agreed with God's righteousness in condemning Gentiles, but not Jews, because, well, they were Jews, and they were circumcised, and they had the law, and they were descended from Abraham, and therefore, they wrongly thought they were not under that same wrath, under that same sentence of sin. And what Paul is establishing in verses 1 through 8, he's answering their objections to what he just taught about the Jews, in chapter 2, and he's answering their objections in those eight verses in the form of questions that they had posed to him at various times. They, I mean the Jews that he had confronted. That's what it's all about, him answering these objections to the Jews being condemned. So let's read, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 9 because that's where we'll conclude this morning with verse 9. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil the good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now let's just do as we usually do. Let's pause and ask God for the illumination of his word that his spirit would help us understand this passage. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, seeking the powerful presence of your spirit in our hearts and minds, shining the light on these verses so that we understand what Paul was saying here, what the Spirit was saying through him, and that we would be able to apply this to ourselves. Let us all see ourselves as sinners deserving of God's judgment and of those needing his grace so that we will cry out to Jesus. Gift me now to expound your word. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's becoming increasingly challenging to convince our world of the fact that each person is a sinner, let alone a sinner that deserves, keyword, deserves the punishment of God. It's not only getting increasingly difficult just to do that in culture generally, but in the church. To convince Christian people that their sins warrant an eternity separated from God in a place God himself created called hell in which he confined sinners there for eternity. It is getting increasingly difficult to proclaim that message, to share that even in churches. Every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Ministries partner together to do what they call the state of theology among Christian people, among evangelical professing Christians. So people who say we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God and Christ is the only way of salvation, those kinds of people. And they do questionnaires for them to see what responses are. So what are people thinking? What are Christians thinking? One of the statements in there that people had to respond to was this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And evangelical Christians had to rate that on a scale of, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree. Almost half of professing evangelical Christians that responded to this agreed with that statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And do you have any, can you see then why those people will wrestle with the doctrine of hell or What Paul's teaching here, condemnation and God's righteousness in 
executing judgment on sinners. Like he not only does it, but he's in the right to do it. They don't agree with that. How could they if they believe most people by their nature are generally good? I mean, what kind of God would put generally good people into hell forever? I don't blame those Christians for believing that. The reason they believe that is because they're in churches whose pastors wouldn't preach through Romans 1 through 3. I mean, if you paid them a million dollars to do it. Well, maybe if you paid them a million dollars, he would. <laughs> because he knows then, they know their churches will be smaller. And it's not sensitive to seekers to make them feel bad about themselves. That's just a bad business model altogether. A faithful study of Romans 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, brings you to the conclusion that all are under sin, and that means they are guilty as charged, and they deserve condemnation. So that if God decided to not save anybody, he would remain faithful and righteous and true. Paul is having a hard time convincing the Jewish people he encounters of the fact that they are as guilty of sin as the Gentiles and therefore as deserving of punishment as the Gentiles. That's where the questions begin to go as Paul's being confronted with these questions. We've looked at the ones, verse 1, of course, the advantage of the Jew. They had lots of advantages, but the main one is they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the very words of God. God spoke to them and no one else. Well, what if, verse 3, some of them were unfaithful? Unfaithful to God, unbelieving of his words. Does their unfaithfulness then nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul said in verse 4, as we looked at last week, by no means. God is who he is. Let God be true, remain true, be who he is, though everyone is indeed a liar. And the responses of mankind do not affect the faithfulness of God to what he promised to do or to not do. And last week, we ended by looking at the positive element of that for the Jews. That one day, God promises to restore all the living Jews at that time, bring them into their own land, and the nations, the rest of us Gentile believers will be around, we'll see it, we'll see what God has done, and we'll praise him for it. And even now, Paul will say in Romans 9 through 11, God is remaining faithful even to them now. He's saving some of them. He's preserving a remnant by his own sovereign grace like he has always done. Just like in the days of Elijah, he'd say, reserve for himself, that is God sovereignly saved them, or they would have went after Baal. I have reserved 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'm remaining faithful in my promise. Paul says, I'm evidence of that. Other Jews are evidence of that. The entire apostolic band was evidence of that. The Jews at Pentecost was, were evidence of that. God's remaining faithful. And to this day, you hear of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. Not, not a lot, a remnant, but coming to faith in Christ. That's the positive aspect of God being faithful to what he said he would do. 
And he said he would preserve his people and he said he'll restore his people and he's doing that. But there is a flip side to that same coin in God being faithful to what he said he would do. And that is to condemn. That is to judge even Jews for their sin and their lawlessness and ultimately their rejection of Christ. He said he would do it and he's going to remain faithful to do it. They had no problem accepting the fact that God would show mercy to Jews. They just had a problem with the fact that God would judge the Jews. And that he would condemn them because they were descended from Abraham. Because they had the covenant sign of circumcision. And because they had the law of God. And many of them were trying hard to keep it. God will remain faithful, friends, to all his promises, both to show mercy to some and condemn others. And what this passage is trying to show us is that God is righteous in doing it. And instead of arguing with it, his people should be praising him for his righteousness in both saving some and condemning others. Now look at verse 4, and I'll show you where this emerges out of the passage. By no means would God be unfaithful to his word. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now notice this in verse 4. This is interesting. Paul says, and he's going to quote a verse now from the Old Testament to help prove his point. So he's going to prove his point here, and he's going to use an Old Testament verse to do it. That's why he says, as it is written. You see how it's connected there? So by no means would God be unfaithful. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. Now let me prove it to you, Jews, from your scriptures. Here it is. That you may be justified in your world, words and prevail when you are judged. There's the quote from the Old Testament. And it comes from a psalm written by David. And I want everyone to turn there. It is Psalm 51. Very important to see the context here and how this will help demonstrate... God's faithfulness to his promises now and God's righteousness in judging sinners even among the Jewish people. Before we read now, we're going to read the first four verses because in Psalm 51, Paul's quote comes from the second half of verse 4 in Psalm 51. But here's the story, right? This was written by David. As a matter of fact, most of you have a Bible. It probably has a little intro here. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now that is a story that most are familiar with, but let me just remind you of it. David was king, the greatest king of Israel. And this is important also in understanding Paul using a quotation from David to show the Jews this is coming. Listen to what your most famous king has said. Listen to what your hero said. Because you're not thinking like he thought. David was the greatest king Israel in Israel's history. But he had sinned big time when he wrote this psalm. You remember he had desired after that woman Bathsheba who was the wife of one of David's mighty men, Uriah. Uriah was off 
faithfully serving his king and serving the Lord and fighting. David sees his wife, desires after her, takes her to himself, impregnates her. Tries to conceal it. Trying to arrange things so it would look like Uriah's the father, but of course that got botched. And so David went to the next extreme to cover up his sin and he had Uriah put right at the front of the battle and he told his men, back off of him. In other words, let him be killed. And he was. So David had committed murder, adultery, treason, deceit. I mean, it was horrible. And he thought he had cleaned it all up and like this was over. And so the Lord sent in the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan tells David a story. I'm going to tell you about two men, David. One was a rich man and had lots of sheep, lots of them. Another was a poor man. He had one little, the Bible describes one little ewe lamb, and he raised it like a pet, loved it, like it was part of his family. And the rich man had a guest coming to visit and didn't want to use one of his own sheep to slaughter and provide for his guest, so he stole the poor man's one lamb. Now, I have a slide for this. Listen to what David said when he heard that story. 2 Samuel 12, 5. Nope, it's, do I have one for 2 Samuel 12, 5? Nope, okay, never mind. Just listen to me then. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, listen, deserves to die. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this, he deserves to die. And he's furious as the king. And his judgment would have been condemnation. No mercy. You kill him. And Nathan said to David, you are the man And it was like in a moment, David knew his sin had been exposed and his heart was crushed with guilt and condemnation. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And he knew it. And it's in that backdrop He wrote a song about his guilt. Think of that in modern day Christianity. Think of writing a song about how sinful you are. How horrible you are. How much you deserve the just condemnation of God. Writing a song about it and putting it in the hymn book of Israel's history. And saying, let all God's people sing this. Hear, choir master. Let all God's people sing about my sinfulness. Remember, David's the man after God's own heart. How does the man after God's own heart think and feel about his own sin? 
What would he say to God about his sinfulness? Was he, would he say, well, you know, I sin a little, but I'm generally good by my nature, generally good. He says this, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that, here it is, you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I am a sinner. And no matter what you say about me as I'm a sinner, God, you, your words declare me to be a sinner. And you are justified in your words. And when you judge me for your sin, whatever you do, up to and including eternal damnation, you are blameless in your judgment against me. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes that verse to a people who just couldn't see themselves that way. I sin a little, but I'm generally good. I had a, have a pastor friend who, in his younger years, took an associate or assistant pastorship or whatever it was called at a church and... He always was a man that sensed his own sinfulness by the grace of God and the Spirit's conviction in his heart. So he loved the gospel and he would cry out in this particular type of culture and the type of church culture it was, was very much Romans 2 and 3 people. And he would say things like, we deserve condemnation by our nature and we are sinners. And your religion isn't going to save you. You'd say these kinds of things. And he got in trouble in that church for that. And they had a meeting in that kind of church. The deacons were the essentially functioning elders. And there was some kind of deacons meeting. One of the deacons came out and said, Well, you preach to us like we're sinners. If you've ever been in church cultures like that, you know exactly the kind of person I'm talking about. But that's the heart of a man who is after God's own heart, acknowledging his own sin. And so Paul is putting it here to show them, your hero, acknowledge God's righteous judgment against his sin. And what did he do? Did he try to justify himself? No, he cast himself on the mercy of God alone. He said to God, He said, verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing a lot of your righteousness. Your righteousness and judgment. In other words, my sin is making you look really righteous, God. And I'll tell everybody about it. I'll say, I'm a sinner and you're righteous. 
says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth. We'll declare your praise. And then he says this, verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not believe, be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, what the Jews would be reasoning is, okay, I'm a sinner. What do I got to do? I got to do something. I've got to work harder at keeping the law. I've got to keep the sacrifices and the days and the, the festivals. And I've got to do things in order to get you happy with me, God. What is David doing here? He says, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. It's the complete opposite of what the, the Jews in Romans 2 are doing. That's the path. The path to salvation is not concealing sin and acting as though you don't have it and trying harder to do good. It's confessing it and casting yourself on the mercy and grace of the Lord alone. And the people that do that, people that acknowledge their sin and cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord, receive it. That's what Paul back in Romans chapter 3, is trying to teach them to acknowledge their sin. Do you know for a person to truly acknowledge, no, 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 more than acknowledge. For a person to truly feel the conviction of sin, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Matter of fact, Human beings are so opposed to acknowledging their badness, I mean feeling their guilt before God and acknowledging that, that God himself, through his Holy Spirit, has to actually go into their heart and mind and do this convincing work. And Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, when he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming, he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to do. See, our hearts are so hardened. The the hearts of those Jews were so hardened and the hearts of the Gentiles are so hardened that it takes God himself to come in. Which is amazing, friends, because if you have been brought to the point of conviction for your sin, rejoice in that. Do not flee from it. Do not run from it. Embrace it. Confess it. And cast yourself entirely on the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to do that to you. And the people who just won't acknowledge their sin, it means that the Holy Spirit is not working in them. The Spirit convicts the world of sin. You know that word convict is interesting. It almost would be better probably in our understanding to think of the word convince because the actual word means to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. That the spirit actually has to work in the heart and bring that person to the point where they say, I am condemned before God and I need a I need a savior. I lack the righteousness I need. I have sinned against God. I am not going to stand in his judgment. And then that person calls out to Jesus Christ, right? And receives the salvation from him. Friends, 
What Paul is teaching in Romans 1 through 3 is not just that we're sinners, but that what our sins deserve is the punishment of God. We all deserve it. You deserve eternal punishment. Understand, friends, if you don't grasp that now in Romans 3, then you're not fully going to understand his teachings, the good news about being justified by faith alone in Christ alone, or the grace of God. When you get down to chapter 3, verse 21, through what, 23, 24, and he's talking about the cross and God putting forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sins, that wrath-absorbing sacrifice, it's not going to mean much to you. You're going to get up into chapter 9, and then you're really going to wrestle When God starts talking in chapter 9 through the Apostle Paul about the fact that I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. It's my prerogative. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So deal with it because I'm God. And you deserve punishment, so if I show mercy to anyone, man, that demonstrates my mercy. What we have to do is go into Romans 1 through 3 and get to the point, no, 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 let the Spirit bring us to the point where we see it all. God is righteous. He's justified in His words about me. I'm not going to argue anymore with what He says about me in the Bible and how sinful I am and how fallen I am and how depraved I am. I'm not going to argue with this anymore. You're justified in saying that, God. And in your judgment of me, you are blameless. You prevail. You're the conqueror. I'm the defeated one. Have mercy on me. Which leads to verse 5. What they caught on, what he knows they're going to catch on to is this. Then, your, then our unrighteousness really makes God's righteousness so good. And in this context, his righteousness displayed in condemning sinners, whether they're Jew or Gentile. God's being glorified for his righteousness and his faithfulness to what he said he would do, and that is condemn sinners. That it brings attention to his righteousness and faithfulness. And so they reason, well, if that's true then, Paul, then my unrighteousness and my unfaithfulness makes God look really good. So then, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? See, I'm making him look good, and this is all clearly part of his eternal plan. So then how can he inflict wrath on me for making him look good? And people reason that way all the time. They'll hear about the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and the resulting death and condemnation that has spread to all men and the countless billions of people whom God has not saved and allowed to go into eternal punishment in that place called hell that he prepared for the devil and his angels and all those who will follow them. And they hear about that and they say, wait a minute, I got a question for you. A couple questions actually. Did God know that Adam and Eve were going to fall into sin? Well, yeah. Why'd he do it? For his own glory. To display his righteousness in condemning and his mercy in forgiving some 
And they'll say, well, that's not righteous then that he inflicts wrath on anybody. And Paul says, in the end of verse 5, in parentheses in our translation, I speak in a human way. In other words, this is the way fallen mankind reasons. This is the way they think. Challenging God for his righteousness and doing exactly what he's done. As Paul will make more clear in Romans 9, he'll say this to them after a certain amount of questions like he does right here. He'll say to them, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? Does not the one who created all things and created us have the right to do what he wants with his creation? For his own glory? Paul says to them in verse 6, though, responding in this passage, he says, By no means is God unrighteous in inflicting wrath on us Jews. For then how could he judge the world? And he throws it right back in their face. Remember what they were doing? They were applauding God's righteous wrath, his righteousness in condemning the world, just not them. So he says, along your reasoning here, Jew, how would he condemn the rest of the world that you were applauding just one chapter before? God is righteous in all that he does. He is righteous in saving some and not others. He's going to remain faithful to his word to condemn those who reject Christ and to save those who receive Christ. It's his prerogative to show mercy to some and not others because remember the main point of chapters 1 through 3. We are all sinners and that means we deserve his punishment. Then he gets personal in verse 7 and he doesn't exempt himself from this concept of being condemned by nature though he recognizes he's saved now. Look what he says, but if through my lie, my unrighteousness, my faithlessness, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner, he says. Even I am under this just condemnation by in nature, naturally, right? I'm in the same position as everyone else. And the reasoning goes on even further. Some people were slanderously charging Paul with teaching things like this. Why not do evil then good good may come? If all this is true and God's glory is glorified in our unrighteousness and God's grace is magnified in showing grace to sinners, why don't we then just continue in sin why don't we just do evil and then the good of making God look good abound can you see how even their thinking and their logic becomes distorted now to even us would say I see what you're asking but that doesn't even make sense and this is the reasoning of the fallen mind that ends up in a very dangerous place listen to what he says about this Listen how dangerous it is to keep questioning God and His righteousness to judge. Look at the last statement of verse 8. Their condemnation is what? It's just. The 
people who are reasoning this way, arguing with this way, challenging God and his righteousness to judge, their condemnation then is just. And friends, it's a path that leads to inevitable thinking that is opposed to God and his gospel. And it's dangerous. And so Paul in verse 9 concludes with this. What then? In other words, it's a way of saying, what do we, what's next? What do we say about this? Our translation says, are we Jews any better off? He could mean that, but understand in the underlying Greek text, Jews is not there. They're supplying it because they think he's still referring to himself as a Jew with the rest of the Jews, and he may be. Saying, are we better off? Any advantage that we have when it comes to salvation? But I think as one man I heard talking about this this week, he may be onto something when he's just saying, what then? Are we, that is, we Roman Christians, me, the rest of the Roman church that believes, are we any better off than the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, or the Gentiles? Are we Are we any better off than them? The answer is no, not at all. For we have already charged, here's conclusion, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Every one of us by nature is under sin, and that's a very bad place to be. If you are in that place this morning, if you are under sin, you are separated from God and you will remain in that condition for all of eternity if you do not repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul will elaborate even as more as he's done here that concept of being under sin means you're guilty. In other words, you're under the righteous penalty of condemnation and the wrath of God. You are enslaved to sin. You're under its power. It grips you by nature. If you are under sin, you have the very presence of sin running through you. As Paul will say, this is an internal thing. And verses 9 through, what we'll look at next week, 9 through 18, show that this sinfulness invades every aspect of us from our heads to our, the bottom of our feet. We are depraved. Every part of us ruined by the fall of mankind and sin. And that's why the, gospel, the book of Romans is so wonderful. When you start getting to the gospel and he shows how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he will show us beginning with the penalty being paid at the cross. See, if you're in Christ, friends, understand you deserved condemnation, but Christ took your just deserts on himself at the cross. So in a very real way, that penalty was paid. You no longer deserve it. It's been paid now. It's been atoned for. You have forgiveness and you have righteousness. Not only that, we'll get to chapter 6 and we'll see that that very power of sin that held sway over our lives and made us enslaved to the sinful passions of our desires and of this world, that sin has been broken. The power is broken. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've now been resurrected with Christ to live new righteous lives, you see. And then he'll get into chapter 8. And the very 
glorious time that we should all be looking forward to. That even though we still have sin present within us, you'll talk about that in Romans 7, we still at times do things we wish we would not do because we have sin within us, that there is a glorious day coming. Paul calls it the revealing of the sons of God in glory. When you will be raised from the dead, you will be uh, glorified with Christ in this new body. No longer will sin ever affect you or infiltrate you. You will never again feel the power of temptation. The cross and Jesus Christ is the answer to sin's penalty and power and presence. It gets us out from that position of under sin into the position of under grace, you see. Look to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, Paul will summarize this in verses 28 to 30. We'll close with this. And we know that for those who love God, interestingly, remember that from Romans 2 verses 20 and 29, that idea that a Jew is one who is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Remember we saw back in Deuteronomy what that meant? When you circumcise your heart, you what? You love God. That's what he said to the Jews. I'm going to circumcise your heart so that you will love me. All right. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see how wonderful the gospel is? Why it's good news? Why Paul's not ashamed of it? Why Paul was so eager to proclaim it? All of the outworkings of the cross of Christ for our lives. Friends, if you have come to the point even this morning and maybe for the first time you're convinced you're a sinner. You really see it. I'm a sinner and I deserve condemnation. Friends, don't resist that. It's the Spirit of God in you. Turn to Jesus Christ. Call out to Him in mercy just like David did. Have mercy on me. Put your trust in Christ. And you know what he he does when you do that? He saves you. That's how it works. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. That's how it works. So look to Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for those nine verses. Thank you for all the verses in Romans that we've looked at to this point, the ones that tell us who we are, how you see us, how you view us by nature so that we can see the grace that you've bestowed on us in Christ and glory in it, glory and revel and praise you for it. Be glorified in working in all our hearts this morning now to see Jesus as our Savior. We ask this in his name, amen.